you live to be that average age, to be the average person, and you attend church every Sunday, you never miss a Sunday, never miss a Sunday in your lifetime, you will end your life spending only five and a half months in church. Sometimes I think um, a lot of us think, you know, I spend most of my life at the church. Well, for those of us on staff, we do. We spend a lot of time here. But a lot of others think the same way. But if you were here, every lived to be 77, I think, was that the, the year that they gave here for the average life. And you were in church every Sunday, only five and a half months in church. Now, the other thing, of course, that's really appalling is the amount of time we spend in prayer. That at the end of a life of about 77 years, out of all of those years and minutes and months and all of that, five, maybe seven months that you would spend in prayer. Now, I don't know whether that's true for all Christians, for all believers, for all who follow after Jesus Christ. But it might be a good reflection of the prayer life of, uh, of a good many of us. And not only are we trying to encourage you during this 100 days of prayer and, and a series of messages on prayer uh, to, to be involved in prayer more and to pray longer and to be involved with that longer, but we also want to talk about the quality and the content of our prayer and where we're focusing. Uh, as our prayer triplet talked today, and Jesse mentioned that, is we need to pray about, our, pray about our church and the life of our church and the direction where we need to be going. Times are changing. And the demographics around us reveal that uh, there are a lot of people unchurched everywhere you look around here. And so we need to be thinking about that and looking inside at the life of our church as well. Now today as we come to a passage of Scripture that goes along uh, with the sermon for the day on prayer, I think when we look at this passage of Scripture, it it probably is one that's very interesting, it's challenging, Uh, it also could be confusing and maybe disappointing If you think you have prayed this prayer the right way and the right spirit, and you have not received that for which you prayed. So look with me at John chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 13 through 14. And then we'll look a a lot at this entire chapter of John 14. But Jesus is talking, and this is what he says. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, in verse 13 is the word, whatever you, the phrase, whatever you ask. That's powerful, isn't it? Then in verse 14, we see, ask me for anything. Now, are we to take these words at face value? That we can ask of the Lord in his name, just tag in your name, Jesus, at the end of the prayer? Now, whatever we want. Or anything that we want or desire, and he's going to answer that prayer? All you have to do is just add like a little PS on the bottom, in Jesus' name. Oh, by the way, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray this. But have you found that to be true in your prayer life? Have you always gotten everything that you prayed for? And have you claimed this, these two verses perhaps as a, as, a, as a challenge for your prayer life that says all I have to do is to pray in the name, of, in the name of, of Jesus and for the glory of God and whatever I ask and anything I ask will be given to me. Well, how's that worked out in your life? What have you been asking for that you haven't received? Yeah, I think that some of us, and I struggled with this for a while at one point in my life, to where I was so frustrated in the fact that I didn't get the thing I was praying for for about 10 years that I, I got to the point where I quit. And that reminds me of a, a story about a little five-year-old boy. Well, a five-year-old boy in a family, he was just bugging his mom and his dad about he wanted a, a, a baby brother. And so 
When the, when the mom and dad found out that they were expecting, and she was about two months along, the dad said, this would be a great opportunity to uh, underscore the value of prayer for our son. So he took him aside one day, and he said, son, you've been praying, asking us to have a baby brother. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for the next seven months, every night, every morning. And he explained to him how long seven months were. And, and I think God will answer that prayer. And so the little boy immediately went to, went to pray. Seven months later, mom goes to the hospital. She delivers. They come home. He's staying at home with the grandparents. Mom and dad come in. They get settled in the house and then call the little boy over. And they move the baby blanket. And lo and behold, there's not one baby brother, but there's two. They were blessed with twins. And the father put his arm around his little boy, five years old, and he said, Now, son, aren't you glad you prayed? And the little boy looked up and he said, Yes, sir. And aren't you glad I stopped when I did? (laughs) Well, I think some of us pray this, claim this, and we don't get what we want, and we stop. So how do we come to understand these verses about prayer? Surely it can't be just a blank check waiting for us to fill in what we want. Surely it's just not a laundry list of things that we can fill in whatever and anything we want and give to God. Well, this is why, again, it's so important that we always understand the context in which we take out a passage of Scripture. We really need to understand the context of chapter 14. Everything that comes before these verses and everything that comes after it. Because what Jesus is really referring to and making reference to about ask anything and whatever, he's really talking about the ministry that he's left us to do. He's not giving this to us like uh, any time of the year you want something, any day you want something particularly, all you have to do is pray and ask for it and you have it. But it's really talking about ministry that, that he has left us to do. Now, how do we know that? Well, what comes after this passage of script, after this and the rest of John 14? Well, that's the introduction of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit would do. Then we move on to chapter 15, and Jesus talks about bearing fruit. And you can't do that unless you are in abiding in the vine, and He is the vine. And then we move on passionately with, with the movement of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. Then we get to 17. Uh, there was that wonderful experience of seeing Jesus humble himself and wash the feet of the disciples and that great high priestly prayer. And then Jesus immediately goes out and he suffers the arrest and betrayal and, and the, then the crucifixion where he died uh, for our sins. That was his purpose. He fulfilled his mission in doing that. Well, what happens at the beginning of chapter 14? Well, we find that the disciples are distraught. Uh, uh, That's why Jesus begins that entire discourse in chapter 14 by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And and the disciples were troubled. You know, in a group, I don't care what what size group you get, whether the believers or non-believers, you're always going to have some kind of differences of opinion and you're going to have where feelings get hurt because, you know, we're just imperfect people. This group of disciples, they were imperfect guys, weren't they? There was a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of, of, um, of little competition between them, you know. One wanted to know who's going to sit at the, sit at the right hand and the left hand and all of that. So there was a little bit of, you know, schism there with them. But one thing they were united on when we come to this passage of Scripture is they all had a troubled heart. And here's the reason why. It's because while Jesus had been telling them along and along and along that one of these days I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to my father. And he was talking about by way of the crucifixion, fulfilling his mission, and then ascending into the glory of heaven. Now the disciples realize all of a sudden this is coming true. You know, what Jesus had been talking about is really going to come true. 
And what were they thinking? Now, they were thinking, well, you know, we've never gotten along without Jesus bodily with us. We depended upon his presence. Uh, we've never ministered. We've never tried to do anything without Jesus along with us. How are we going to get along? And so their hearts were troubled. Now, I want us to just break it down a little bit. We look at John 14, these first few verses. Probably most of the time we associate it with the death and a funeral of a believer. And we do use it many times. I've used it no telling how many times in my career of ministry when I've conducted a funeral. Whether it's the major text for that funeral or whether it's just a comforting passage of Scripture. Well, let's see first of all what Jesus does. And the first thing is that in verses 1 through 7, Jesus comforts the disciples with the promise of heaven and tells them that he is the only way there. Let's just hear it again. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Here's where Thomas speaks up. Thomas can be called Doubting Thomas or whatever you want to call him. But Thomas wasn't going to agree that he, he, he accepted something until it was explained to him. And he just simply said, he said, Lord, he said, we, we don't know where you were going, so how can we know the way? And so Jesus assures him of this. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So with those first seven verses, Jesus comforts the disciples about the promise of heaven and the fact that he is the only way to get there. Well, then we look at Philip. Most of the time, we don't ever point an accusing finger at Philip. But Philip raised a question. And this is where Jesus confronted the disciples with his deity. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And in Jesus' answer, I think there's a little bit of irritation in Jesus' voice. Listen to him. He says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. In other words, Jesus is saying, come on. I've been with you for this amount of time. We've walked together day in, day out. You've seen me do miracles. You've heard me teach. I and the Father are one. They had heard that. And Philip had the audacity to say, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Show us God. And Jesus says, I, I'm showing it to you. You've, you've lived with me all this time. Now we move to, to verse 12. And this is the great challenging because this is where Jesus commissioned his disciples to a greater ministry. And when we read this one, I want to know, have you, have you ever wondered about this verse and what it means? Well, it's challenged me a lot. Jesus says in verse 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, wow. Listen to that commission. Jesus says, I'm commissioning you to a ministry to where you will do even greater things than I have been doing. I think what the disciples back then saw Jesus do as they walked with him in life. 
From his first miracle at a wedding that was going to be an embarrassment to the family, he, he changed the water into wine and saved them. And then at the very end of his life here, he was resurrected from the dead by the power of God at work in him, a miracle in itself, right? And that was Jesus resurrected. And think about all between what they saw him do. John ends his book by saying all the things that Jesus did and said, all the volumes of books in the world couldn't contain them. But yet in the midst of the Gospels, we look at them, we see all the miracles that Jesus performed. You know, he, he, he healed those and restored sight to those who were blind, to those who were crippled. He allowed them to walk. To the lepers, he cleansed their skin. He took two, two fish and five loaves of bread, and he, he fed a multitude of people. He constantly did things like against the forces of nature where he could speak and rebuke the wind and the waves, and the sea would quiet down. He raised the dead as well. And for years I marveled at that and I thought, what, what, what does this mean? Now we see a little bit of it in Acts, in the early part of Acts, that the disciples had some of this great power back then. But what does it mean for us today when we, he talks to us about this greater ministry and greater things that we will do? I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing he will even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, you need to keep that phrase in mind when we look at verses 13 and 14, okay? But let's understand what he's talking about. What's he talking about to us? I think these greater works are twofold. Number one, it means that our works will be greater in type or, or in effect. And it goes like this. They watch Jesus preach about the kingdom of God and talk about the kingdom of God. But from Pentecost, when the Spirit was unleashed and Peter preached that great sermon and 3,000 people were saved, from then on it opened up that ministry that we still have today of being able to lead people to faith in Christ, see their life transformed, and know that they will spend eternity in heaven with God. See, that's the ministry of greater things that we will do. Jesus was here only a limited amount of time and able to speak only to a few people. And we live much longer than that. Average lifestyle on the screen this morning said 77 years. Think about all the time you have for influence. Then the second thing I think about this is that our works will be greater in scope or the extent of our ministry. If you think about the real actual ministry of Christ, it was really in a very narrowly confined geog geographical area, right? He never walked outside of ancient Palestine. He traveled north and south perhaps no more than 100 miles. East and west perhaps no more than maybe 60, 70 miles. And look at what we have the opportunity to do today. You know, back then people in China and other places of Europe and around the world, they didn't, they didn't hear the teaching of Jesus. They weren't there with him. They didn't get to hear that. It was only that handful of disciples and other believers there in Palestine who had that opportunity. In fact, his ministry was so limited in scope that the agnostic David Hume once said that it was immoral for God to expect the whole world to believe something that was limited to such a small area of the world given in such a short span of time and in only one culture. Well, we know the truth now, and that is that Christ was like a rock dropped into the pond of human history, and the ripples are still washing ashore, reaching people. 
See, right now today, we are in more countries with the gospel, and countries are opening up to us like never before. And right now, the Bible is being translated into more languages than ever before. Are there still people groups who have not heard yet? There's still languages that have not got a Bible translated into their language. I think that's a part of the reason why the Lord has tarried in His coming. Because one of the promises He says about His coming is that the gospel will be preached to the entire world before He comes back. Because He wants everybody to have that opportunity to hear about Him. So this is what this, that we are called to do in this greater work. What was the work Jesus said there that he'd been doing? He'd been proclaiming the kingdom of God. And we will have the opportunity to do that. I think about just in the life of our church. We have a young man in Istanbul, Turkey now on, on a mission endeavor. We've had people from the life of our church go to Romania and Brazil and in our own country going to West Virginia and other places like that on mission trips. Honduras and Guatemala and places like that. Uh, Japan and, and other places that you have gone and you've been on mission trips to share the gospel. Think about that today, the scope of influence that you can have today. Now you sit there and you think, okay, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was God in the flesh. He was God. I'm not going to be like Philip and say, show me the Father and I'll be satisfied. He was with the Father and they were one. So what was the work that he was doing? Proclaiming the kingdom. What are the greater works that we're going to do? We're going to take the scope of the kingdom to another level because we've got longer to live, more influence, and we've got greater ways to get to places around the world. You think about all that technology we have today that can get the gospel around the world. It's fantastic. It's a wonderful time to be alive if you use it correctly. And how will we accomplish this? Jesus ends verse 12 by saying, because I'm going to the Father. And what's the significance of that? It's because there he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. Now, you see, all of that is preliminary to these verses, 13 and 14. And hear them again. This is what Jesus says. After that context, he says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, here Jesus challenges the disciples to a greater prayer life. And he tells them to ask for whatever and to ask for anything. Now, we've tried that on our own before using prayer kind of like a a magical uh, uh, Aladdin's lamp where we just rub it and a genie comes out and grants us our three wishes or whatever or anything that we want. That's not what Jesus means. It's not really a prayer that guarantees to us that anything that we simply ask for in the name of Jesus that we get. But when we pray in the name of Jesus, what that means is we are asking for God to do something, for Christ to answer that prayer within the realm and the scope of His work and His character. Go back and look at the verse in in verse 12. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what? What I have been doing. What was he doing? Proclaiming the kingdom. Showing the love of God. Telling us that we can have a relationship with God, that we can be redeemed. Those are the greater works that we are called to do. And and the promise from Jesus here is that he will supply whatever and anything we need when we seek to fulfill his work. Now, there are two stipulations that Jesus puts on it. We have to understand them. First of all, we have to pray in the name of Jesus. 
And Jesus is encouraging a deeper significance than just ending our prayer with, oh, by the way, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's a biblical way to pray. It's an accountable way for us to pray. That we're going to God by the authority of Jesus Christ. And to pray in the name of Jesus Christ is literally like signing out his name to the bottom of our prayer. You know, for the disciples, a new concept, not a new formula, but a new concept. Now, if we're going to pray in the name of Jesus, then I think that there are some things, some questions here uh, we need to take a look at this morning, okay? First one is this, am I praying with pure motives? So, you got to be careful that you're not, again, back in this thing about praying selfishly. Now, God is concerned about your family. He's concerned about your health. He's concerned about your job. He's concerned about everything about you because he loves you. And he wants you to pray about those things. But that's not the context in which you are to pray here at this particular point. So, what are your motives? Your motive has to be to usher in the kingdom of God. Am I praying with pure motives? Second question is this. Am I more concerned with my prayer request than I am about my relationship with God? See, prayer is that wonderful opportunity and privilege we have to come into a relationship with God and talk to Him and hear Him talk to us. The relationship is far more important than the words you offer in that prayer. Third question is this. Am I requesting that God answer my prayers according to my way or His? Oftentimes when we go to God, I'm guilty of it, we all are. We, we, we tell God what the problem is and we tell Him what the solution is. You've caught yourself doing that, haven't you? We want you to do the, I want you to do this, Lord. This is what you need to do and, and this is how you, I need you to do it. Really. He's God. He knows everything. We never go to God in prayer and tell Him something that He doesn't know. All right, then... Um, the last one, I think. Do I really expect God? Oh, no, we are. Number four, skip one. Am I more interested with God? Am I more interested with what God will give me than in what God will do in me? And then the last one. Do I really expect God to answer my prayers? You know, James talks to us about praying without doubting. If we're doubting, we're like one who's tossed on the seas and the waves. So, am I praying with pure motives? Am I more concerned about my prayer request than I am about my relationship with God? Am I requesting that God answer my prayers according to my way or His? Am I more interested in what God will give me than in what God will do in me? And do I really expect God to answer my prayers? Bottom line, if we're going to pray in the name of Jesus, is simply to pray and say, Lord, I want what you want. The second criteria is that our prayer must be designed in such a way that it seeks to bring glory to God. What did Jesus keep talking about all the time that he was here? That he was here not only to come and proclaim the kingdom, but to glorify the Father. He came near the end of his life, and he knew what was going to happen. He said, now the hour has come, and do I pray to be delivered from this? No, I have come to glorify the Father. And that's what he prayed. That what he did in his final act would bring glory and honor to the Father. See, God is interested in your life, every aspect of it. And and you can take all of those concerns to him. 
But what he really is wanting us to do here in doing the work that he's left us to do, these greater things in scope and in type, is to, is to pray so that anything that we do will bring that glory and honor to God. Now, I always tell you all that you have the benefit of the wisdom and insight from the 845 worship hour because they always had the opportunity to comment on things and I can share it with you. Uh, it was said to me by one of the members leaving this morning, he said, you know, if you really just simply pray and say in Jesus' name and you really don't mean it, he says, you know, you're breaking a commandment because you, 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 you are taking the Lord's name in vain. And you know what? I thought, you know, that's true in it. That if we want to just tag in Jesus' name at the end of every one of our prayers and we really don't mean it, and we don't want to be doing his will and asking for that power to do what he had been doing. And we really aren't concerned about bringing glory to God. We just got selfish motives. Then we're taking the Lord's name in vain. That's why we need to make sure we understand these verses, these two verses. And that we pray them in the proper context. That when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying for his will and his work to be done. Everything that he's interested in is the object of our prayer. And then we're praying that in everything that God allows us to do, it will bring glory and honor to his name. Now, let let me wrap it up with this. Um, Light travels at the speed of, say, roughly 186,000 miles per second. I think in a vacuum, it's 186,282 miles per second, if you want to be precise. That's how fast a, a a beam of light travels. So for a beam of light to leave earth, it will reach the moon in a second and a half. That's fast. Get to Mercury in about four and a half minutes, Jupiter in about 35 minutes, Saturn in about an hour. But if you travel to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, it would take you over 100,000 years. That's a long time and that's a long way to travel. And if along the way you counted the stars, you would have counted more than 100 billion stars. Now, what's that got to do with our prayer life? It's this. The God who created all of that, and the Bible says that he created all the stars, he numbered all the stars, and he named all the stars. It's that God who offers you the opportunity to live in relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, and who offers us the opportunity to come to him in prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. And pray for his glory and honor to be done. Now that's a wonderful opportunity and privilege that God gives to us. And at the same time I hope you've come to understand these two verses. It is not a blank check to ask for anything that we want. But it is our praying. These two verses are isolated on praying about the work that Jesus was doing and commissions us to do about advancing the kingdom of God. And so as we pray, I trust that, number one, we will be sincere in praying in Jesus' name because we don't want to be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. And number two, that we will be serious in that whatever God does through our life, it will bring glory and honor to him. Father, we thank you once again for this wonderful, wonderful privilege of prayer. Help us in these times that uh, we're meeting in triplets and praying these hundred days uh, that you would guide us and direct us with wisdom 
and power and strength. And you'll give us the insights that we need. Help us to grow in the relationship with you, Father, in prayer in such a way that we will always want to be in constant communication with you. Yeah, we'll increase. Uh, we want to increase the amount of time we spent with you, but we want to increase the quality of time that we spend with you. And, Father, we ask you to work that wonderful miracle through us that we would do greater things for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.